you know, the, the fight for the history to be correct is one of the most important fights of all. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm your host and the editor and I'm very pleased to have Douglas Murray on the pod. You heard him at the top there and I was keen to chat to Douglas because of his new book, The War on the West. It's a polemic which tackles head on the recent attempts at shame for much, if not all, of Western history. Now Douglas discusses the importance of history being correct there. And it's something that we at Aspects of History uh, take very seriously. Our chat concentrates on that history, and in particular Winston Churchill. But we also briefly mention his book of 10 years ago, Bloody Sunday, and a bit on critical race theory and reparations for slavery. Now for listeners of this episode, we have an offer on the Aspects of History annual subscription, which is usually at only 9 99 but with a voucher code, History 50%, uh, and that's in the show notes. It's available at half price, so only £5. Head to our website to find out more. If you can subscribe or even leave a review, I'd be delighted. But I'll leave you to my chat with Douglas Murray. Okay, so Douglas Murray, thank you very much for joining me on the Aspects of History podcast. It's a great pleasure. And it's on the day of your publication as well. It is. Um, it is. It's a, it's a busy time, but it's an exciting time. Launching a new book is, is, is uh, not apparent, but I think it's a bit like putting a child out into the world uh, in that you sort of hope everyone's going to love it, uh, but you also know that it's dangerous out there. <clears throat> well, particularly for you, Douglas, because uh, a lot of your stuff... Uh, does attract um i don't know it certainly attracts comment which is fantastic Mm -hmm. um but i but i gotta be honest i haven't read the only one of yours i've read before this Mm. is the bloody sunday inquiry (coughs) which i thought was brilliant just i'm so glad you say that because i'm very proud of that book and very few people have read it it took me an awfully long time an enormous amount of work um and um Oh, so I'm delighted you've read it. Thank you. Oh, well, um, I mean, as I was reading it, I was I was thinking how much work must have gone into this because you seem to have attended so much of uh, did you attend the whole uh, all the I didn't intend for any readers who don't know this is the inquiry into the uh, killings on Bloody Sunday in Londonderry in 1972. Mm. Uh, uh, it, it was a long contested issue in the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, it was a lot of ill feeling about it because of some right recognition that the army had done wrong, uh, which had been, had been a sort of cover-up of judicial level in the UK. And then 30 years later, Prime Minister orders an inquiry, and it went on for 10 years. And in fact, as, uh, as your, your listeners will be uh, well aware of this, but I mean, before that, the longest judicial proceedings in the UK ever was the uh, impeachment trial of Warren Hastings. Uh, the, um, that looked like a positively fleeting legal uh, issue compared to the Bloody Sunday inquiry. And yes, I mean, there were thousands of witnesses, thousands of days of evidence. I went to all of the most important days, the soldiers, the uh, the victims and others. Um, but it was probably per hour of work to book ratio about the 
most work you could put into a book because the volumes of evidence I needed to go through, it was just millions and millions. I had an entire room filled with bloody Sunday files um, because you had just know so much about it. And when I wrote that book, I, um, I was very aware, and again, you'll know this writing history yourself, but that I had to do justice to the whole thing in the round whilst making it understandable to the widest possible audience. And, um, and I, I really enjoyed that challenge of distilling a really complex story, which was made complex, not least by the fact that, you know, when people 30 years or 40 years actually in the end later, are trying to remember something, we remember, we discover that our memories are very fallible. And I learned personally so much from that process I, learned, I, I read into the psychology of memory and much more. And I realized that, you know, for historians, it's even more complex than we thought because even our memories are, aren't fixed. And, you know, anyhow, it's a long answer, but uh, it's, it's, I found it a, a really um, invigorating and sobering process of trying of, of a reminder of how difficult it is to get to historical truths. Absolutely. And I think also... It, for, for such a sensitive issue on both sides, mm. you managed to mm. deal with it very even-handedly as well. I thought that mm. you know, it was very fair. Well, um, of course, I mean, I'm a unionist. I mean, that I believe in the United Kingdom uh, uh, mm. staying together. But you know, uh, the, the British troops that day definitely did wrong. Some of them, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, there were some people who were rather surprised that I'd written that book, considering that that's you know one of the conclusions. But, you know, if some, somebody does something wrong, you know, as the dedicatee of that book, the historian Ruth Dudley Edwards said to me, she said, all we, she said at one point, she said to me, all we can do, Douglas, is to tell the truth. And I yeah. thought that I was so moved by that. Absolutely. Um, well, we're here to talk about the war on the West. Mm. Um, I mean, I, but I could talk about the Bloody Sunday Inquiry <laughs> book with you for, for a long time. But um, so, so uh, this book which I've read and, and I really enjoyed it um thank you uh and and for the first the first chapter on on race and China mm. I actually that was laugh out loud moments for me I'm so I, pleased well I do rather your your sense of humor which is also in the bloody Sunday inquiry book as mm. well um mm. is is yeah it's, it's it does slightly appeal to me actually that um but, well I sort of think as you know that it's important to try to keep a narrative going mm. to you know among other things I mean humor is a very without being deliberate about it or forcing it. It's just there are times when what you're writing about is ludicrous, you know, particularly if, uh, in the war in the, on the West, you know. I mean, I, I had to do the audio version. I had to do, I wanted to do the audio version and did. And I had the same problem with this book as I did for my previous book, uh, The Madness of Crowds, which is that I kept on corpsing, as they say in the theatrical world. I kept on corpsing whilst doing the reading. And I had to keep explaining to the sound engineers but I wasn't laughing at my own jokes. I was laughing at the absurdity of people I was quoting, which on the page very often reads absurd. But when you read it out loud, it's even more so, you know? Well, one thing that strikes me that I actually, I did want to mention, um, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's sort of towards the end of the book is the garden, garden situation. I had no oh, idea yes. gardens could become gardens could be racist i had no yes, idea isn't isn't that amazing it's sort of it, um i do subheadings again also to sort of 
whip along the narrative. I always find that it's useful for me as a reader and others. You know, if you see hundreds of pages of text and no breaks, it can be off-putting to the reader. Subheadings are very useful for that. And I quite enjoy subheadings that are true, descriptive, and utterly ludicrous. And my, my two favorites from The War in the West is the subheading Racist Babies, um, which is the allegation that even two-month-year-old white children can express racism or some such nonsense. And the other, the, my other favorite subheading is Racist Gardening. Uh, yes, Racist Gardening is the claim that even gardening is racist because, uh, as one Canadian academic put it, lawns are racist, apparently, because lawns demonstrate uh, um, order uh, by the way, the, the person writing this clearly is a racist himself, because that means that black people represent disorder, which is a profoundly racist claim. I mean, you, you, why white people would represent order is, is beyond me. I mean, white people are able to be disordered as anyone else. I mean, but but yes, and also, of course, the claim that Kew Gardens and others are, are now forcing on us and on themselves, which is that you need to decolonize horticulture. Um, uh, I can't help thinking that um, that a world that believes that there is any priority to decolonizing horticulture is a world very close to collapse. I mean, you can't have very much to do with your time if you think that all your main task in life must be to explain why the shrubs are racist, you know. <laughs> It, it really is is bonkers. Some of this, it, this stuff is just crazy. The people won't believe some of this. I mean, you have to see it in the book. Everything is footnoted. Everything is evidence. Um, but some people just wouldn't believe the claims that are made. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, one area that that you do go into that I, I, I've been quite new to this because until relatively recently, I, I worked for a, a large financial institution which hmm. is very interested in this kind of stuff as well to to, hmm. to, to oh, end goal is to make more money for any sure. large institution um you know attract the right um graduates and that kind of stuff right um but yes this white uh, uh critical rate critical race theory and mm. white privilege um and I, I was very struck by that quote you gave of thomas Sowell's. um yes which incidentally which... i, I I was looking Thomas Sowell is, is a great man, great man. Um, uh, I, I mentioned him in the Madness of Crowds as well, one of the most distinguished modern American thinkers, a conservative, and he happens to be black, which the left will never forgive him for. Uh, and and he, he, his argument seemed to be, you know, we are kind of at the stage where the, the, there isn't really, I mean, there is, there are pockets of racism, but, but, endemic racism in the United States yeah. is, is kind of, it it's, it's very much, if, you know, it exists like a lot of very ugly things. You can't entirely stamp it out of this world as much as you might like to, but um, it, it is at the furthest fringes of society. Nobody who's actively racist against black people, anything else is permitted anywhere near public life and quite right. You know. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, you, there's no way you could argue with that. But one thing that interested me was around critical race theory, which I find very uncomfortable. Uh, mm. It's it for me. We're all equal. We're all human beings yes. on the planet. We were brought up to believe that and, and know it. Yeah. Mm. But 
Um, there are areas, um, and I think I'd read somewhere, sort of mortgage mortgage applications, for example, where there mm. is a little. There, there is like statistically, it, it, if one looks at that, could could one see a sort of an element of where one color is is discriminated against um, in not necessarily in well, favor of another, but just there are claims that that's the case with certain names and uh, app, uh, app, applying for mortgages and so on. Um, well, there are statistics that show, for instance, that um, in contemporary America, I mean, median uh, average household um, um, uh, income, but also um, the, the, the amount in, in total assets that a household have, that there is a, 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 a pretty, pretty significant disproportion between the assets of a white, the average white household and the assets of an average black household. Now, that is that is definitely a challenge. Um, it is not obvious, and some listeners will be surprised to this, but it is not obvious that the answer to that is racism or that the cause of that is racism. And one reason we know that is because, as it happens, the same statistics show that the average Asian American household is better off than the average white American household. And the average Latino uh, Hispanic household is between the average black American household and the average white American household. So um, if, if, if the explanation for everything was institutional racism and white supremacy, which is what the purveyors of critical race theory claim, then it, it, they haven't made any, they haven't been able to provide any evidence that, that would suggest it because it would mean that it was a very incompetent white supremacist society, which was incompetent at keeping Asians down, for instance. Um, it would mean that the, the, the white supremacists were so overrun with keeping black Americans down that they didn't have time to find themselves to the Asian Americans, but maybe they'll get there in due course. I don't think that is the answer. I think that racism is a factor in some aspects of life, about, by the way, the most obvious of which has nothing to do with this is, is um, uh, dating and, and, and marriage. And there's nothing much you can do about that. I mean, I mean, uh, although there is a lot of, there's much more intermarriage in, in America now, year on year in Britain, it's the same. Um, people are, are, are less and less bothered by that. But for instance, in the black community, it's much more common to marry um, other black Americans than it is to marry out. And, uh, that's very common across communities. But so, I mean, is that racism? I'm not sure if we could simplify it like that. Um, but but the, but the point I was coming to is that on things like average household household earnings, average uh, assets, um, um, mortgage applications, and much more, I do think we're dealing with a multi-dimensional problem, mm. um, and it's unwise to claim that there's ever one explanation for everything you encounter. And it seems to me not just unwise, but provable. But using racism as the sole lens to look for everything, look at everything is 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 not fit for purpose uh, that there are that there are other issues that exist in the case of and I mean um, uh, many many Black American writers have written about this um, uh, Coleman Hughes uh, Thomas Chatham Williams and uh, Thomas Sowell have written about the fact that you know one of the things that is is the cause of uh, American uh, black uh, families having less uh, household assets is um, uh, fatherless families. I mean, um, everybody knows that um, um, 
that once the family splits up or if it was never together, um, and let alone if a mother is in a situation of having to bring up children on her own, which is sadly, and again, provably more the case um, in certain communities, then that does have a, a knock-on effect on income. It has a knock-on effect on your ability to apply for a mortgage and be approved for a mortgage. And again, that isn't necessarily because the mortgage bro brokers are white supremacists. It's because they are they are working out whether the bank is likely to be able to be repaid, and that and 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 uh, it is just so unhelpful to do what the critical race theorists and others do and just claim that that is, nothing else is an issue. That racism is the only issue. What, what, what struck me about um, the, throughout the book is is just the sort of lazy thinking. Um, yeah. That, that, um, and and I really want to get on. You must finish that clause, by the way. You, you said what really struck me about the book is the lazy thing. <laughs> yes, sorry. I, I wouldn't like that. <laughs> From the I critical race theorist, I should point there. out to yes, the listeners. Yes. And one area that I've, I've been reading about that I'm interested in because I did ancient history at university is hmm. this approach to um, the classics as... Mm being yes. viewed as elitist well, well it's always had that but um but also you know concentrating far too much on the mediterranean and should we be looking at other areas and and one one article i'd read um written by an academic in america um i think at princeton was arguing that you um latin and greek should not be required to be studied in a classics degree because um <sighs> because it's effectively racist to make um, black people study these two subjects because That's it's right. you know it's sort of too difficult for them and i find that incredibly yeah. racist well you know it is but it's one of many many such things uh the classics are one of the first victims of this but this 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 same same claim has now ridden across every discipline um again people will have to see chapter and verse and footnoted in the war in the west the extent to which this has flooded through everything. But uh, my old alma mater of Oxford University, the, there are calls within the music faculty there to stop teaching um, musical literacy. That is, you, you would be able to get a degree in music at Oxford University without being able to read music. What's the explanation? That the Western notation system was come up with by that worst of all categories, dead white males. Um, and you know, when I first encountered that argument, I thought this is insane because, I mean, there are several different uh, musical systems across the globe that have been developed that have pitch and time, which are the two things you need to have uh, for an accurate notation system. There's a system of a kind in China and there's been one that's been developed in India and, and others, but none is ac as accurate as Western notation system. And we know that because if you were to play a Beethoven piano concerto to somebody writing in any non-Western system of notation, they could not write it down and then play back to you something that resembled that Beethoven piano concerto. Whereas when various ethnomusicologists from the West traveled to Bali, for instance, um, they wrote down gamelan music and played it back to the locals using the Western notation system. It's just it just works better. It's like the argument against against free markets it's, it's that it, it was produced by w white men and well again it, it, it's not because it was produced by white men it's because it works um but but sometimes i think people think well this is the sort of nonsense that goes on in the humanities but that would stop at stem and as i show in the war on the west it 
doesn't stop at STEM. It doesn't stop anywhere. Mathematics is in the process of being decolonized, just like the gardens and everything else. There is an attempt in America, something called equitable maths, which is a movement to stop black children and others having to do maths because they have other ways of knowing. Now, this goes back to your point of something that is actually racist in the name of anti-racism. The best way for any young black American, like any white American or else, who is born into a poor background, the best, best chance, the only chance they will have in their lives, arguably, the only ladder they've got access to is the ladder of education, which is the ladder that most of us climb. And if you don't, if you don't have that, then you can't get to the anywhere out of the situation and you'll just be stuck. Well, this movement in education, America says, no, demanding that black Americans and others do maths is racist. And therefore we should say that there are other forms of knowing, which by the way, is never defined at all. And this is, I'm afraid, an attempt to get around another inequity, which is the um, um, inequitable uh, results in mathematics tests. I would have thought the answer to that again is to work harder at making sure that young black Americans, as well as everyone else, is better educated. You will be unsurprised or surprised perhaps to learn that the main American teaching union has decided that tests are the problem because testing is racist. And so the answer is to do away with testing. Now, what we have just between us outlined in the last few minutes is the complete destruction of education as we know it. Starting from what you say about the classics and going there through the humanities, STEM, and right up to just the idea of testing people and having exams. I don't need to explain that this is a disaster for everybody and it must be pushed back against. It's not anything to do with racism. It's, it, this is, this is a movement that, that, that uses racism as the one explanation for everything, but in actual fact uses it as a lazy explanation. Teaching unions and others don't want to do the hard work. You know, their members don't want to teach difficult things. They don't want to tell students that they haven't done well when they haven't. <sighs> and, and one area I, I was... Um... Uh, very keen to talk to you about is Winston Churchill, and mm. so th particularly in this in in the UK, um, Winston Churchill is a revered figure, and yes. and for a vast majority of the population, I mean, yes, the poll we had was twenty years ago now, but I suspect he'd still come out number one. If the greatest was... Britain poll, I've no doubt that if the greatest Britain poll that was done twenty years ago, yes, uh, was done again today, it would be Churchill. Yes. Um, but so do you think because uh, I mean, it, uh, it is bonkers to to um, to because, again, it's lazy thinking. Historically, if you look at um, I think one area is the Bengal famine that I mean, that mm. has been disproven. Um, yes. Yes. The, the, yeah, the, as I well, so I mean, there's two things to say. One is that um, people are, um, are, are I think will be surprised about the assault on Churchill. But I mean, it has been gathering pace. Uh, both in academia, in, in some popular books, and also, of course, literally on the streets. Two years ago, mm. the Church, Churchill statue in Parliament Square repeatedly got vandalized and ended up having to be boxed up 
in an iron in an iron case for its own safety. And it was only unboxed when Emmanuel Macron came uh, for some um, celebrations or commemorations of the free French in London. And I think that the, at that point, the British authorities realized it was sort of embarrassing if the prime minister of the day was protected, his statue had to be protected from the modern British public. So they un uncased him again. But um, I think people would be surprised at the ferocity of the attack on Churchill. It It, it, it is now at the, the point that the BBC, whenever they run a story about Churchill, always have a link to their page of the 10 worst things he did, the 10 great crimes of Winston Churchill. Things like the Bengal famine have been litigated, they've been gone over and over, and I think the evidence is very clear that in the middle of the war, Churchill did what he could to try to assuage the appalling um, hunger that was going on in parts of Bengal, but um, and it was not successful. Uh, but he did ask, especially for the Australians and others, to supply grain. Um, but the allegations made by his accusers are, are, are not just that he didn't manage to do it, it's that he wanted Indians to die. Uh, I mean, it's such an outrageous smear on Churchill. Not, and I mean, again, it's one of these things where it's also provably not the case. I mean, first of all, isn't it? why would Churchill want to fewer Indians it is not made clear. And secondly, of course, even if he did, which he didn't, he was very bad at it because, of course, famously, the population of India boomed uh, during the period of British rule. So everything, anyhow, the point is that everything about this is deeply, deeply unfair uh, as a historical exercise. But what interests me, and I think might interest your listeners as well, is, is why Churchill should have come in for such special attack. And uh, if you look across the Atlantic to the US, where so many of these um, manias are coming from, precisely the same exercises going on there. If you look at the way in which the founding fathers of America have been uh, re-litigated in recent years, or indeed, very interestingly, the historiography of Abraham Lincoln in recent years, uh, you will see that a similar process of, of um, iconoclasm is happening there. And uh, I'm, I'm aware you have a very sophisticated audience, so I don't want to belabor this point, but I believe there is a reason why this is happening. And that the reason is that what is what I'm describing in the war in the West is a revolutionary movement. It is a cultural revolution that is going on, is being attempted. Now, what does that have to do with Churchill or Lincoln? If you are carrying out a cultural revolution, you need to go to the holiest places of the civilization you wish to, to make subject. You need to destroy their holy places. You need to defecate on their altars. You need to deliberately show them that what they worshipped can be destroyed. And then you have a subjugated people. Now, some people might think that sounds extraordinarily extreme, but I ask you, why, why is the effort so strong to come for the most revered figures? You know, only a few years ago in the film Darkest Hour came up, there were accounts of audiences across the United Kingdom watching that film, which I thought was pretty good actually, um, and uh, watching that film. And when at the end, Church, um, uh, who was it, Gary Oldman that plays Churchill, mm, uh, yeah. when, when, when he get, does the, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches, speech and you remember that's how the film ends yeah and that beautiful scene where where one of the characters says um uh, what just happened says to, uh, says to Hall halifax what just happened 
and I think it's Chamberlain said they give him a line. He he just um, took he he what's it? He recruited the English language and sent it into battle. Wonderful, wonderful line. Now that that moment at cinemas across the UK, people stood up and cheered. There was there were many many stories of cinema audiences standing and cheering because because as you know churchill is is more than uh, just another figure in history he is as sacred as you can be as a historical figure and it isn't it isn't because we didn't know his flaws or don't know his flaws or think he didn't do anything wrong with it, but because he also represented what our parents or grandparents went through um, and what they suffered for and fought for and and so this is this is deeply moving to, to, to many of us, to the British people, in the same way that Lincoln is deeply, deeply important to the American people, because, and it's not just because of the Civil War, which is enough, or freeing the slaves, which is enough, or being victorious in the Civil War, or, or the Gettysburg Address, it's not just he kept the Union together, it's also that he had the crucial American success story, that he came from absolutely nothing, you know, Lincoln probably, I was speaking to one of his biographers the other day, Lincoln probably had a total of one year's education. He basically grew up in the Iron Age. I mean, they had no running water, of course, they had nothing. And he became president of the United States. He read books, he taught himself. It is the great, one of the great American success stories. Why would you come for Lincoln? The same reason they come for Churchill. They want to attack the holiest figures. They want to make people despondent and subjected and demoralized. And I'm afraid I think it's a big giveaway. Now, I'm an optimist, Douglas. So um, it, the, with the audiences leaping up off their seats and, and, mm. and clapping, mm. uh, the, the people who are trying to take down Churchill and Lincoln, I mean, this is an impossible task for them, surely. Well, you say that, but I don't know that that is the case. Um, I think it is possible. You see, I think that it entirely depends on on what history ends up winning through. Now, of course, this is in itself a sort of ludicrous claim because nothing's ever settled. Um, reputations rise and fall and go through cycles and so on. And, uh, and I mean, I, I should stress, and I say this in the opening of the war in the West, I don't want any of the debate to stop. You know, I don't want anyone to be silenced or you know, I, I want them to, to be critiqued for sure, as I do. But I, I enjoy the debate. I think the debate is necessary, but it cannot be one-sided. And I'm afraid that if it is one-sided, um, and if you don't know, not just the specifics of your own nation's past, but, but have some idea of what the rest of the world was up to, I think you can do that. You know, if you decide that anyone in the past who used the racial term that we would not use in 2022 is to be cancelled effectively, which is, seems to be, as I say, pretty much the decision we've come to, except for, as I say, the case of Karl Marx, who was a very vicious racist by modern standards, but weirdly isn't put through the same process. If you look at somebody like David Hume, whose reputation has been destroyed posthumously because one footnote of one of his essays, which all Hume scholars know about, has a nasty uh, racist thing in it. Um, it's, it's, it. If that's enough to have David Hume's name taken off buildings in Scotland and called for his statue to be removed from the Royal Mile, then then, then, then clearly no one knows what, where the stop levers on this damn cart are. And if you believe, as American school children are taught, that 
you know, your founding sin as a country was slavery. If you're taught that, if you're taught that and you don't know that every civilization in history had slavery and that it just happened that America was started at a time when slavery was sadly commonplace everywhere in the world. You know, if you don't know that, you could easily be brought up to believe that America was uniquely racist and was uniquely a, a country of slavery. If you don't know that, you know, I don't know, Winston Churchill was born in Victorian England. He would have had some Victorian attitudes because he was born in Victorian times. Um, if you don't know that and know what the contexts of the time were, you could be told, well, he was a racist and you would therefore decide. I, I, I realized this movement was underway some years ago, and I think I described it in the book, when after a lecture at a university in America, I had mentioned um, uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, I think partly because there's only two people I've ever known who really read and understood Kant. I, I, I admit to finding it exceptionally hard, partly because Kant is not a very clear writer. Uh, but also through my own intellectual failure, I'm, I'm certain of that. But I, I knew two people who, who really understood Kant, uh, uh, my late friend Roger Scruton, and um, and also a professor of mine at, um, at Oxford. Um, and I think I mentioned him in, in passing, probably because of the difficulty of reading Kant and, and understanding him. And a student said afterwards to me, you know that Kant used the N-word. And I couldn't work out why this student was saying this. I thought, well, first of all, it seemed unlikely. And I was trying to think what the German words would have been that he would have used. Anyhow, the point is, is that, is that then I suddenly had this break. I thought, oh, I see. If, 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 if you can call Kant a racist, then you don't need to read him. You see, because you're better than him. Because you're not a racist. And you live in 2022. And he, he didn't live in 2022. And he didn't have all of our views. And therefore, skip over it. Well, it's the same thing with the classics. And if anyone thinks I'm exaggerating, again, go and read things like the, the Washington Post piece two years ago, saying that Aristotle was the grandfather of scientific racism. Um, among Aristotle's sins, uh, posthumously, were uh, that, you know, writing 2,300 years ago, he didn't have all of our views. Again, absolutely astonishing that. Um, you know, if you if you don't have your present in the right context and you don't have anything in the past in the right context you know you're you can actually be told anything you, you can be persuaded that up is down and down is up and that Churchill is a villain and and so on I'm afraid I'm afraid that you know the, the fight for the history to be correct is one of the most important fights of all so I mean it's this is laziness again with reparations, I think, because mm. um, if you if you just say, look, we'll we'll just throw money at the problem. Um, but I watched a very yeah. and you make you make the arguments about how difficult the, the reparations question is. Mm. Um, and I I watched an interesting debate between Glenn Lowry and, and Christopher Hitchens discussing discussing this very question oh yes 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 it is interesting christopher hitchens is in favor of reparations and glenn lowry is against um, yes for the for the very reasons that it is lazy it means we can just say oh okay well we dealt with all the all the issues you discussed earlier on in, in mm. our so let's just you know write them a check and and then after that anytime someone raises their hand for a problem we go well you know we already paid you, so you, can you know go away. that's 
That's right. And you see, I'm very anti-reparations because and for lots of reasons. Um, one of which is that at this stage, I say this in the book, in the chapter on reparations, is you know, at this stage, we're not even talking about a wealth transfer from one group of people who did something wrong to another group of people who've been wronged. We're talking about a wealth transfer from one group of people who look like a group of people who did something wrong in the past to another group of people who look like the people to whom the wrong was done. Now, that is both practically and ethically a nightmare. And I am very, very concerned about the way in which reparations have returned as an issue. And by the way, I've actually just written about this for the Times of London. Um, look at the fact that it appears now that no member of the British royal family can go on any overseas trip without people claiming that they need to say sorry for slavery and pay reparations. Again, I'm sorry, but this is a failure of understanding of history. Um, uh, when uh, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge recently visited uh, the Bahamas, there were calls for them to apologize for slavery, as if the royal family had never done so. Prince Albert apologized for slavery and described it as being one of the great stains on European civilization in 1840 at a public meeting in London. Um, it, it is it, uh, just uh, the other day, uh, the, the Wessexes, the poor things, uh, Edward and Sophie, Count Countess of Wessex, uh, were on an overseas trip, uh, I can't remember where it was, St. Vincent, somewhere like that. Yeah. And, they, and there were calls for them to apologize for slavery and to pay reparations, for the queen to pay reparations. Uh, uh, it, it, this, this cannot be stressed enough. There is a phrase of Nietzsche's from the, the genealogy of morals that I steal here. There is a type of person who likes to pick at wounds that are in the process of healing or have long since healed and then cry about the hurt caused to them. Nobody alive today took part in that slavery, and nobody alive today directly suffered because of it. Now, as it happens, today there are estimated to be around 40 million slaves in the world. I've actually met some on my travels, and people who were born as slaves. This is unbelievable. Um, uh, and we don't hear anything about, about this. We, don't, we hear nothing about this. 40 million people, by the way, is more slaves than there were in the 19th century. So... Um, I, I am deeply concerned that, that in, the, in the name of picking at historic wounds, we actually don't deal with things in the present. And we misunderstand the past. We, we get the past in a faulty light. And, you know, reparations, I'm, my own view, and this may be contentious, but I put it out there anyway. My own view is that Britain already paid reparations for the slave trade. We paid it in the Royal Navy. First, well, we paid it first of all by George III signing the act that abolished slavery in the United Kingdom and her territories. And then in the Royal Navy policing the high seas for the next six decades and losing thousands of sailors, brave British young men who patrolled the high seas, um, boarded ships in incredible danger, there's a very good book about this, by the way, which I have somewhere by uh, Anthony Sullivan called Britain's War Against the Slave Trade, which I much recommend about the operations of the Royal Navy's West Africa Squadron between 1807 and 1867. A very interesting book. I found very helpful and credible. But, but, you know, I'm sorry, but, but we spent the 19th century paying reparations for slavery. And actually, an actual fact, it wasn't just in blood. It was also in treasure. Every British household paid, paid more in goods throughout the 19th century because of our unwillingness to trade with slave trading uh, uh, countries. 
Um, so I'm afraid I, I think that the reparations were paid long ago, actually, and people do, do not have the right to shake a tin 200 years later and demand an ignorant, a newly ignorant populace pay them in cash. I mean, it reminds me of that shakedown effort that occasionally happens at the UN. Robert Mugabe, the unlamented late Robert Mugabe, was a great expert at that. He would always call for reparations to be paid. And it was never quite clear whether uh, some African leaders thought it should be paid um, generally. Uh, Robert Mugabe and, other, and certain other leaders believed it would be more convenient if the, if the wire transfer went straight to his bank in Geneva. But uh, that's another, another matter, perhaps. Um, so, Douglas, I want to end on a, a positive note and your chapter on gratitude. Um, mm. Actually, I've, I found it very uh, beautiful, really. Thank um, you. And that moment on the... the I'd read the Brothers Karamazov, but I can't... I've, mm. got, to, I've got to admit, I've, I've, I'd completely forgotten about that, that part. But um, it, it made me think... I remember a few years ago listening to the radio of a North Korean woman who escaped from a camp... Yes. Her yes. uncle had done something. Yes, whole family. family punishments. Yes, that's right. Uh, but she was the most positive person in the world. And I, I, if someone like that can 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 take that attitude, that's that's really the, the best way of looking at, at all these contentious issues, I think. I couldn't agree more. Um, what I say in the, in the book is that you see everybody can be uh, um, a person of uh, ressentiment. It's not quite the same thing as resentment, but let's say everyone can be a person who's resentful. And actually, it doesn't depend on your race, it doesn't depend on your skin color, your sex, your sexuality, or even your socioeconomic income. It depends on you as a person. Are you a person who is resentful towards others, resentful to their successes? Uh, well, everybody can be, and we all know people of resentment. And there can become civilizations and societies of resentment. And I quote the brothers Karamazov because there's a moment in that where Ivan uh, speaks with the devil. And uh, the devil in passing says, gratitude is not a, a sentiment I'm capable of. Only Dostoevsky, only a genius of Dostoevsky's greatness could have thrown that away so so easily as a phrase why would the devil be incapable of gratitude because the devil would have to be incapable of gratitude because if the devil was capable of gratitude he would no longer be the devil and you see my argument is among much else in the war on the west that we could be peoples of resentment we could all bring up the next generation to, to reopen wounds and cry about the hurt. We could bring them up to hate what they don't have and to hate what they have. Or we could say, you know, what we have in Western democracies like Britain, like America, is not just unusual in historical terms, but highly unusual in the world today. The only country in the world that might compete with America in the 21st century to take over is China, led by the Communist Party of China. Chinese society, a Chinese communist society, looked very different to our society. We would have none of the things that we take for granted. So my suggestion is recognize that what we have is good. Recognize that we can always improve, of course, that's uh, uh, uncontested. 
possible. But that if what we have is good, and we know that it is because the world still wants to come to us, Britain, America, these are the first and second countries of destination of migrants in the world. All the UN reports show that. So if people want to come to us, it must be because we do something good now. And if it's something good now, it means we did something right in the past. Not everything, but not nothing either. And I believe that just as you can walk down a street and look at your feet and contemplate the dust and more, so you can, as a society, as an individual, look up and marvel at what is around you. And what we have around us in the West is, is just marvelous. We have so much and we would be such fools to throw it away or be persuaded to throw it away by people of resentment, relying and trusting on the possibility that we are a generation of ignoramuses. Well, I think that's a, a perfect way to end it. it. Just leaves me to say thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation, Oliver, and um, all the best to you and to all of your readers. So just a one-parter today, uh, but I hope you did enjoy it. And if you didn't, I hope it made you think about uh, other points of view. And if you have any suggestions for me, by all means, please get in touch and you can get hold of me. As I said at the beginning, you can either get hold of me on the Twitter at OllieWCQ or through an email, history at aspectsofhistory.com. So coming up... And I mentioned this last week, but coming up, we've got Gavin Mortimer talking about the founder of the SAS, David Sterling. We've got Giles Milton talking about Checkmate in Berlin. And we've also got Damien Lewis uh, talking about his latest book as well. So uh, I've got a, a, a heap of interesting subjects coming up. A couple of those are on the Second World War and we've got another one on the Cold War. So I'll leave you now and I hope you have a wonderful bank holiday weekend for those in the UK and for those outside the UK. Have a lovely weekend anyway. Thank you and good night.